Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, December 23rd, we are studying 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. St. Paul concludes his second epistle to the Thessalonians with final instructions for the church there, as well as with a greeting of peace and grace from his own hand. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Milbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Good to be back. So, Pastor Cook, you've got the close of this epistle. Give us the the rundown of of what Paul's written thus far that leads us up to this point. Uh, He's uh, concluding his uh, conversation, uh, his warning against idleness, so laziness. And that's, uh, I think you can make an argument, the first verse we're going to tackle appropriately belongs as the conclusion to the preceding section um, of not being lazy, uh, earning a paycheck, and being productive, uh, not for salvation, but for the benefit of your neighbor, and as an outward confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And uh, so that that's where we're going, and then he's going to wrap that up with... Uh, a uh, quick summary statement, and then a typical benediction or blessing that he usually adds at the end of letters. Very good. So let's just jump right into this text. As you said, it is very closely connected to what we looked at yesterday, the previous verses. We're starting again in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul writes, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That again is Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, the close of this second epistle, our text for this morning. So, Pastor Cook, Paul starts off with there, he calls them brothers, and he says, do not grow weary in doing good. What, what is it about good works that are, are wearying? Uh, well, the temptation is to not do them. Um, and that is... Uh, appropriately, it fits appropriately to the previous section of idleness, and uh, and so the idea of uh, if you continue to preach grace, uh, salvation is by by faith through you know by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. You can rightly then conclude, well, if Christ does everything, then I don't need to do anything, and that is true as it pertains to salvation. Um, but uh, as we have heard from Christ our Lord himself, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so uh, though discipleship is uh, a wearying, ongoing uh, endurance, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, 
these kinds of uh, language, that kind of terminology and language is frequent throughout the gospel. So you're, you're reconciling this, uh, it's all by Christ, all by Christ, uh, all by grace, uh, salvation, uh, with uh, the experience of discipleship, which is really, really hard. Uh, so hard, in fact, that the only way you stay in it is, well, now we're back to grace. So, mm. Mm. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's tiring, and you can think of any um, good work that you do, uh, and that gets tiring. The lady who's, uh, or the guy who's leading uh, VBS every year, ask them if it's tiring. Uh, the Sunday school teacher, the faithful, uh, you know, catechism teacher at larger congregations, um, even the even the pastor, week in, week out, plugging away, writing sermons, wondering if this matters at all, the mom who has another load of laundry to do, uh, the dad who's going to go punch the clock yet again, That it's, it's just, it's exhausting. It's absolutely mm. exhausting. Mm. And um, it's easy to just say, you know what, I'm, I'm done, I'm out, I'm going to look out for me. So a couple of questions then on on that. One, what gives the strength to keep going? You, these repetitive tasks that you're you're talking about, is this Paul just saying sort of like Nike, just do it, right? Keep on keeping on, or or what? What gives the strength when this weariness of good works sets in? Love, uh, the love of God is what gives the is what gives the strength. Uh, so we're called to love as God has loved us. And uh, we, uh, we, you know, love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, of such things there is no law, Paul will say, of the fruits of the Spirit. So, yeah, love is what, what uh, keeps, us, keeps us going. And uh, in, the, in a way of making foolishness the wisdom of the world, um, it is indeed good. This stuff is good. It's good to keep it, keep it going. And so... Uh, the love of Christ does it, and then we we do it because of our care for others. We do it because of what Christ has done, rather than being motivated by, I need to do this because if I don't, then you know, that other shoe will drop or the hammer will come down or something like that. So it's not a fear-based motivation, like do this or don't don't do this or else. It's just no, keep trusting in the Lord that these are good things to do. And uh, and you can trust the Lord because of the love He's shown to you by His death on the cross. So that's good. What's, so driving it. Yeah. So the the love of God, the love that He has for you, the love then that that fills you, overflows through you to show love for your neighbor to do these good things. And that was that was my next question for you. You you were listing several works that that might get tiring a, a mother changing diapers or doing another load of laundry uh, a pastor preaching week in week out how do you know what the good is that you are to keep on doing uh, anything that has the blessing of god um is those are the good things that we anything that has the word of god attached to it so when martin luther was doing his whole Reformation bit, uh, his frustration with uh, the church at the time is that they had come up with, you know, a good work was not um, like not, you know, eating fish on Fridays or not eating meat was now classified as a good work. And, And Martin Luther's scratching his head and he's like, where's that in scripture? 
Um, meanwhile, uh, Scripture does have a lot to say about training children, caring for others, looking after the widow and the orphan, the almsgiving, um, and uh, the looking out for other people. And so the good thing is whatever has the Word of God uh, attached to it. Martin Luther has this um, a sermon that he wrote, a, a couple of sermons at, at marriages and uh, in one of his sermons on marriage, he said, to talk about the institution of marriage in a Christian way means to praise its most exalted characteristic, namely that God's word is attached to it. And so that's that's the difference, is where has God spoken and what has he approved of? And then you can do those things knowing that they are uh, pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Uh, again, not to earn salvation. You always got to clarify that. Um, but uh, but they're good. They are they are good things. Um, and you could rightly quibble about whether a pilgrimage to Rome or Jerusalem is a good thing. Uh, you can talk about the the feast, the fasting uh, strictures, things of that sort. It, there's a lot of things that man has made up and classified as good that has no word from God at all. Hmm. This this matter of what is a good work, that it is whatever God has said, what he has given, those are the good things, I think helps tie this together as to what makes it wearying. Because at least so far, Pastor Cook, all of the, the good things that you've talked about God giving us to do tend to be rather mundane. And I think for many Lutherans, we would rightly think of when it comes to good works, we would think of the Ten Commandments. These are good things that God has given us right. to do. We know they're good because he's spoken. And and they're they're rather boring. I mean, honoring my parents just isn't as exciting as taking a pilgrimage to Rome or or fasting on Fridays or, or whatever. The, these other works that you're saying just aren't as, well, I mean, th- these mundane, that, that's what they are. They're, they're boring, it would seem. And so that's, that's perhaps why the encouragement keep on doing them. Maybe they don't seem important to the eyes of the world. Maybe they don't even seem important to you, but they are important right. to your neighbor, and most importantly, God's given. Go ahead, Pastor Cook. No, yeah, this, uh, well, so two things. Martin Luther wrote a treatise called The Treatise on Good Works, and it is literally a commentary on the Ten Commandments. Uh, he starts at the First Commandment, and he works his way all the way to the, <laughs> to the Tenth one. And so, uh, yeah, these are, this is where God has spoken, do these things, and they are boring. Uh, by and large, um, they are. It, it reminds me of uh, the story of Naaman uh, when Elisha, Elisha tells him to go bathe in the Jordan River, and he's just furious. And uh, he's asked him to do such a simple thing. It can't possibly be that simple, you know. I I suspect if Elisha had told him to go climb Mount Everest, he'd have given it a go with a cheerful spirit. <laughs> but it's just dip yourself in the dirty Jordan River seven times and come back to me. So. Um, yeah, it, it is. It's um, mundane uh, work, and that's, um, that's fine. It's appropriate. It's helpful. And if you want to see a place where the value of the mundane um, really kicks in, I, I encourage you to go to a um, hospital and see what nurses do, uh, or even more so, uh, go to a, a nursing home. Uh, and see the staff care for the residents there. And um, it, it, is, it is good to remind the staff there, hey, I know this is another job that you're doing, and this is a gainful employment for you, but don't forget that you are make a big difference in the life of this person. 
Uh, and this thing that you might not be je- cheerful or joyful uh, to do uh, is can make or break someone's day. And so you can encourage workers in that regard uh, to the benefit of everyone involved. So mm-hmm. this this conversation also helps too, I think, in terms of where the the strength that we were talking about comes from to keep doing these good works. It comes from the love of God as we know it from his word. Whenever we have that word, then we know that what we're doing is in fact good. It's worthwhile. It does make a difference. Maybe that's a bit too cliche, but, but knowing that God has given it, that makes all the difference as to why I can keep doing this. And then knowing that that I do this, as you've been reminding us over and over, I'm not doing this to earn God's love. I've got that in Christ already. I'm doing this because he has loved me and he's given them as good things for, for me to do. And so that that begins to strengthen me in the midst of, of the weariness that I would feel doing these good works day after day after day. Right. Yeah. I, I write, um, I make it a practice of writing thank you cards, um, at my parish and a significant number of them end with this exhortation, which gets repeated again in Galatians chapter six, verse nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and there he adds an extra line. He says, uh, do not grow weary of doing good for, um, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And so he even points to uh, the good works, the benefits of this. They're just built in. They're built in. And so mm. it's very much a, a tortoise and hare approach. You just keep, you know, how often does he direct us to consider the farmer? Uh, mm. <laughs> or, you know, the hardworking farmer gets the first share of the crops. James will do the same thing. Um, consider the farmer who waits for the early and the late rains. So, um, hmm. yeah, put it in there and trust that the Lord was being truthful to you when he uh, exhorted you to these kinds of works. Uh, and then um, just the benefits are built in. The harvest shows up. And um, that's good. So with that exhortation then in verse 13 to, to keep on doing good, not grow weary, but hold on to what God has given, verse 14 turns more into a warning. And, and it seems that it's a, a bit more general than just the matter of, of doing good. How does, how does Paul move then into verse 14, Pastor Cook? Yeah, he, uh, well, I think, I think if, for what this is worth, I think 14 is a new section. I really think 13 proceeds is, concluding, or at least a hinge between the previous and the next. But he moves to, um, if anyone does not obey what we have written in this letter, take note of that person. So he's just wrapped up this warning of of idleness, suggesting that there are a lot of people that are being idle or lazy. He talks about them being, you know, busybodies, his little play on words there in Greek, and we try to get it in English. Um, and so now he's going to say another word about those who do not keep or hear or heed or obey uh, the message of the uh, message of the letter. And so uh, let's keep doing this, and uh, let's. Uh, well, uh, one of the greatest ways to be uh, discouraged in your work is to surround yourselves with people who don't find value in what you do. So um, it it just naturally follows that don't grow weary of doing good, and along those lines, um, 
be wary, do not associate, do not surround yourself with uh, people who uh, are not going to, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wearying enough when you have the support of someone else. Um, mm. When you have people encouraging you to quit, that's very difficult. And that's kind of what we see exemplified in the martyrs, right? They're, they're surrounded by people who are encouraging them through pain and torture to renounce the faith. And I know that's a, a broad, large kind of uh, contra- contrasting example here, but um, yeah, it's hard to <laughs> keep going when you have people telling you to quit. So perhaps a more more positive way of, of saying this then, and not positive in the sense that it's good and this one's bad, but the the way forward would be similar to what we read in, in Hebrews chapter 10, where it talks about, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, as right. is the habit of some. So, so that would be the, the positive way of phrasing what, what Paul is saying here. Correct. Yep. That's, uh, that's, that's good. You see a similar thing with uh, Paul in, I think, Romans 12, the outdo one another, uh, outshow one another in honor, or how is that competitive nature of, uh, you know, he, he encourages this one-upsmanship when it comes to showing honor to one another. <laughs> mm. So, yes, that uh, would be the positive way of saying the same thing. So what is it, I mean, what is it that they're not, obeying and maybe we, we should talk a little bit about that word we we talked about it briefly in second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8 talks about do not obey the gospel and in English the word obey obedience very much carries with it an idea of of doing what what right. you're told whereas the Greek word is probably a bit broader than that so what what's Paul getting at here with not obeying what we say in the letter yeah it's <laughs> You've captured that well already. It does not move into English easily at all. Um, and it's very much drawn from Hebrew. Um, so the, the great prayer, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, I believe, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word hear um, is the same concept. Hear, obey, keep um, is, is what we have uh, going on there. And so, uh, yeah, we have uh, this idea of obedience. Those who uh, do not, uh, how does he say that exactly, do not, yeah, obey, follow, uh, heed, take into consideration. Um, and then the, what we say in this letter, <laughs> the, the thing he's talking about is the word. Uh, that is the message of the letter. So this isn't a... Um, He's definitely moving to a concluding statement, and I think that this verse, I'm rambling, and I don't like that. When he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, um, that phrase there, and you don't see it in English, is very much a summary statement. Um, Tologo is the word, um, the word, the message, the report, the entire thing. And so it's it's very much a summary statement. It's not a if anyone doesn't you know follow along with this not growing weary business. It, it's broader than that. And um, and so when you get here now, you have to take into account everything he said from the very beginning, and you rightly directed us right back to uh, 
chapter 1, verse 8, he's already addressed this. So he's now bookending the entire letter with uh, heed the words that are being believed. Essentially, it's believe the gospel, right? This is um, uh, John the Baptist talk, now that we're in Advent, right? Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus says the same thing. Um, now, believe is a different word. I understand that, but the same concept, uh, so. Sure, sure. I mean, put yourself, the, the way that we talked about it when we, we looked at chapter one was like, put yourself under the hearing of this letter uh, and whatever, you know, so how do you put yourself under the hearing of a promise? You believe it, as you said. How do you put yourself under the hearing of of a command? Well, you do it. You obey it in English. And, and so that, I, I think that's a, a good way. What is this? Just tell me what you think of this. The fact that he uses the same phraseology here in chapter 314, he says, does not obey you know, this word that we've written and he uses that same phraseology about not obeying or putting yourself under the hearing of the gospel. What does that, what does that say about what Paul thinks he's, he's writing and the authority that he has? Uh, <laughs> that's a, I just kind of threw you a curveball there, didn't I? Pastor did Cook? A little bit. Uh, yeah. I meant every, whenever you talk about Paul and authority, I'm tempted to pull you immediately into Galatians one. Huh. Paul is talking about sure. his all not being from men, but of God, uh, etc. And then depending on, yeah, I would imagine at some point you discuss when these letters were written. Um, and I scanned this as well, depending on who you read. Um, you know, <laughs> these I, most people place these letters pretty closely together. I even have one guy who says that Second Thessalonians was written before First Thessalonians, um, which I don't personally find compelling, but... Um, it, you know, it, it's early, and so Paul is going to continue to address the issue of his authority. By what authority does he speak and say and, and offer these things? But it is, a, it is an authority of, you've been proclaimed to speak a word from God. And um, this past Sunday, we, if, for those on church, on the three-year lectionary, we read about the steadfastness of Job uh, from St. James in our epistle reading. And uh, Job is a good example of this, where he has terrible things that have happened to him, and then he has uh, his three friends who show up, and they provide him all this counsel. The problem with their 40 chapters of counsel, or give or take, um, is that they don't have any word from God to share. So you can't share what hasn't been given. And Paul is sharing here with the Thessalonians what he has been given. Uh, and he has been given from God the, the message uh, of Jesus Christ as Lord and his return in glory uh, and the resurrection reality of uh, the message of the cross. So hmm. that's the word. And the fact that he uses gospel and the word, my homiletical uh, bells are jingling uh, and uh, tis the season, I guess. Um, yeah, the Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh, and I know I'm jumping over to John and getting a little bit uh, um, fast and loose, but uh, homiletical license, it, it's not hard to draw those connections. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good answer, and I, I wasn't trying to get you off track there, but it's just, it, it struck me, that's the kind of, of phrase that, well, especially in our world today, you might imagine a pastor saying something like that. If you don't, if you don't do what I'm saying in this sermon, I'm not going to pay attention to you. I mean, it just sounds, 
a bit outrageous. And, and so to to notice Paul doing it, and, and what authority does he have to do that? The authority of the word, I think you're, you're rightly pointing us to. This is his authority to, to speak this way. And, and maybe gives us a, a picture into his own, you know, what is what does Paul think he's doing here? He's He recognizes that he is authoritatively proclaiming what Jesus himself has given him to proclaim. Even if he's not as direct about it as he was with the Galatians, he's still got that same mindset already here when he's writing to the Thessalonians, I think. Right, and the truth doesn't uh, change. Uh, if you think back to Romans, like God be true and every man a liar, so that uh, the ur- uh, the urgency. Maybe I'm jumping ahead of schedule here, but there is uh, there is an urgency that um, characterizes or colors both of these letters. Um, that I think more so than maybe other letters, and um, and so he's I have a thing to say, and I'm going to say it urgently. Uh, sincerely and passionately, uh, and I'll say it again, even if you decide you're going to do something else that's inappropriate. So, mm. Mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Paul Paul here speaks authoritatively. He's speaking the Word of God that he's been called to speak. We're here on Sharper Iron, expounding upon that, looking at it, digging into it, so that we might hear that same authoritative word for us today. We're going to take a short break. We're looking here at 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 13 through 18. We'll be right back after this break, though. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, December 23rd, we're looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 with Pastor Tim Cook of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, prior to our break, we were looking at Paul's command to watch out for people that don't listen, don't obey what he said in this letter. And and he tells the Thessalonians to take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. This sounds pretty harsh. What's, what's going on here? Uh, it is harsh. And what Paul is getting at is um, this is a serious matter. This is not uh, this is not child's play, and so you need to take it seriously. We have a very similar thing that happens in our small catechism with the Christian questions and their answers. Um, there's a note at the end of those and that says these questions and answers are no child's play, but drawn up with great earnestness uh, of purpose uh, by Dr. Luther for both young and old. Uh, let each person pay attention, and then he runs to Galatians 6 and reminds his uh, readers, God will not be mocked. Um, so uh, it, it, is a little bit, it is a little bit harsh, which is uh, fine. We're, uh, I think, 21st century Americans are uh, sensitive to things that are abrasive while simultaneously 
embracing abrasiveness. We seem to be a little bit uh, two-faced in that in that regard. But one of the greatest offenses that you can do in the world right now, culturally, is to offend anybody. And so it leads to kind of the political correctness, culture, etc. Um, but Paul's, Paul's pointing out, he says, yeah, um, take, take note of the person uh, who is not obeying, heeding, placing themselves under the authority of the gospel. And uh, so, you know, if you've got a person who's like, no, this whole thing is ridiculous, it's silly, if they're just dismissing, disregarding uh, the gospel, that is, that's not healthy or appropriate. Uh, and and there's no there's no reason for you to uh, be um, uh, to call yourself uh, a brother at that point. Essentially, I mean, he'll tell you to treat them as a brother here in a second, uh, which we will discuss. But that's that's what's going on. Don't run with this too far. Uh, this is not suggesting there are two problems you run into. But he's not suggesting don't associate with anybody. So you get on an airplane and you're going to fly to uh, I don't know, New York City and you find out that your pilot is not a Christian. You don't leave the airplane because, well, I don't want to be associated with that. Uh, that's ridiculous. This is within the context of the church and those who live as a community who confess Jesus as Lord. And so that's, that's the warning. Um, now, it's also not uh, an exhortation toward perfectionism. The church is full of sinners. You do not have to go far before you will find people who are guilty of not um, obeying or heeding. Or I mean, we're all poor, miserable sinners, frail. The good that I would do, I don't. That what I don't want to do, I keep on doing. That's a very real and honest um, struggle for everybody who belongs to the church. But Paul's cry at the end of that uh, struggle is, well, it doesn't matter, so go do what you want. Uh, his cry is, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And the answer is, well, now we're back to Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. And as soon as you are relying, turning back to Jesus, well, now you're back into the obedience, heeding authority of the gospel. Um, so um, this is, don't associate, uh, don't call yourself in communion with those who reject Jesus is Lord. Hmm. So it's it's not a it, this have nothing to do with him as it's translated in the ESV. Doesn't mean that you couldn't talk to the person or go to the person's place of business or something like Correct. that. But don't don't act in such a way. Don't speak in such a way that would give the impression that this person is a. Christian is is that I mean that, that sounds harsh too. We're, we're going to trigger a bunch of people here, Pastor Cook. I mean, is is that is that the idea? Yeah. Uh, yes. Don't be disingenuous. Uh, okay. So don't don't tell people, hey, uh, they and I are on the same page when you're not. Just don't do that. And so the word gets translated variously. Um, do not hear it as uh, have nothing to do with. Elsewhere, it's, I think the NIV took it um, as have no association with. Um, the, the Greek word has more of the idea of mixing, do not mix, uh, do not mix with. I think that's uh, very helpful in the sense of um, uh, know who you are, know whose you are, and, and live accordingly. And so don't, 
call yourself by by something else. Uh, if you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ, and you don't belong to somebody else. So, um, you know, no dual citizenship here on the religious landscape. I think your other your other um, ca- not caveat's not the right word, but your other the other way that we can fall off on the wrong side of this is just as important that this isn't about perfectionism. It's not saying, Paul's not saying that you Thessalonians are going to stop sinning and anyone who starts sinning, that's the one you're, you're to do this to. No, it's, it's not a matter of, of stopping sinning, but it has to do rather with, I think at least the way that I've usually talked about this is with repentance. When you've stopped repenting, when you, when you think that your sin is okay, when you, when you stop having contrition, over your sins and then faith in Christ, that's when you run afoul of what Paul is talking about here. Is that is that a fair thing to say? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you've hit, hit the nail on the head. Um, I would caution any listener, you know, if seeking out a good, faithful Christian congregation to worship at is very important. Uh, if you are looking for a perfect Christian congregation, uh, you will never find one because the Christian congregation is made up of sinners. And so, um, as the psalmist exhorts us, don't put your trust in princes. So if you're looking for perfection in something other than Jesus Christ, uh, even in his bride, you're not going to find it, Um, which is the point. And by saying that, you're now directed back to Christ. So if you're looking for, boy, you know, everything will just be right if I find that perfect congregation, that's... um, that's idolatry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm. Everything is all right when, when you're living in and under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we try to live that out as faithfully and gently as, uh, as we can, uh, holding firm to our convictions when necessary. Okay, so that doesn't mean being spineless. Um, but uh, do not mistake uh, the bride for the bridegroom. Uh, he is the one who sanctifies and makes holy. And so... Um, yeah, the people you're not associating with or having nothing to do with is uh, those who have rejected Christ as the source of um, holiness, salvation, life, forgiveness, things of that sort. So your reference to repentance is spot on. Uh, I tell people repentance is turning toward Christ. Every time you turn toward Christ, you're turning away from sin and vice versa. Every turn away from sin is a turn toward Christ. That's the only way to get away from it. So it, it is absolutely Christocentric. It's, mm-hmm. that's, it's all about Jesus. Yes, it is. So these, these ones then that you would dissociate with who have turned away from Jesus, Paul says that the goal here is that this one would be ashamed. Are, are we trying to humiliate people, Pastor Cook? Great question. Uh, so shame in Scripture two directions here. Paul occasionally says, I write this to your shame. He says this twice in uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, And uh, elsewhere, he writes, uh, I do not, probably also in 1 Corinthians, I'm scouring, yep, also 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I write this not to shame you, but to warn you. But essentially, shame, not with the goal to humiliate and belittle Uh, and to make small, as if that's the end goal. Uh, Here, this is shame in the sense of by the same way parents might tell their children, shame on you. 
It's not because they're going to haul their children outside and embarrass them as much as they possibly can and humiliate them. When they say shame on you, it is a rebuke. Uh, It is an exhortation to return back. So correction is the goal, not humiliation. And uh, a quick uh, glance at... uh, The Greek text here, even the Greek word for shame, there are two Greek uh, linguistic families that are translated as shame. And one of them is um, very much shame for the purpose of humiliation. Think again of Hebrews, who uh, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. That's a different kind of shame. One whose goal is simply to humiliate. Um, But the shame that leads to correction, that's, that's this word uh, and as you'll see, the surrounding context also supports that point. Right. So the and the surrounding context, I think, very much helps us in this because an enemy is one that you would shame with the purpose of humiliation. Think of the way that that victor, victorious armies would have treated those that they had conquered. That sort of shame over that they were giving to their enemies, whereas the shame that you would want a brother to have. Is, is this matter of correction. You, you would not want your brother to be humiliated in front of everyone else. Rather, you would want him to see how the way that he was living, believing, was leading him in error so that his shame would cause him to turn around. So take us into that, that context. As Paul says, don't, don't treat this one that you're dissociated from that's a shame. Don't treat him like an enemy, but warn him as a brother. What's, what's he getting at there? Uh, exactly what you've said. Um, so this is going to color or support um, or paint that shame language and what its value is. Uh, I'm sensitive to this because we're li- we live in a shaming culture. Um, I, a, I think the book is John, I'm going to get the author wrong, but you can go get it. It was featured on NPR probably four years ago called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And he went through and he uh, tracked down all these people who were uh, subject to the outrage mob on, on Twitter. And um, a very powerful uh, book. I've read snippets of it. Um, and uh, so I'm sensitive to that because as a culture, we feel kind of this righteous value in, haha, we really showed them. Um, but Paul says, no, the goal here is um, not to humiliate or destroy, which is why he moves into that question about, or not the question, it's why he talks about, do not regard him as an enemy, but as a brother. Uh, So how do you treat enemies? Enemies are people that you combat against with the goal of destroying. Um, That is how you, that is how you treat enemies. And, uh, that's not how you treat your brother. Now, one thing that will complicate that is we have in Scripture the words of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, but I, I have uh, put together the ridiculous uh, logical fallacy that uh, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and Scripture tells us that sin, death, and the power of the devil are our enemies. So Jesus wants us to love sin, love death, and love the power of the devil? Of course not. That's ridiculous. So what kind of enemy are, are we talking about? Well, it has to do with the people that God has redeemed. See, now we're back to Christ. Uh, Christ's death on the cross 
uh, his blood, his desire is that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so you treat people not as enemies because they're not. Your goal is not to destroy them. If anything, your goal is to love them that they might see the love of Christ, turn from their sins and live or repent and live. And, uh, and so that's how you are to treat the brother um, or this is how you are to treat the individual who does not heed the gospel. That we, we do not take up arms and, and go to war. That is not the goal here. Um, we, are, we are to uh, love them, we are to correct them uh, in our teaching, and we are to exhort them toward repentance. Um, so Paul uses the word enemy nine times in his epistles. Uh, and I went through all of these, very interesting, but uh, maybe the most famous one is 1 Corinthians 15, where it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? And so you have... Uh, these enemies of God. He must put all his enemies under his feet. Uh, And we know that God will do these things through Christ in Christ's return. But twice in Scripture, um, in Romans 5 and in Colossians 1, you and I are called enemies of God. This is not an enemy that God destroys. This is not an enemy that God puts under his feet. But rather, this is an enemy that he loves and reconciles unto himself. So the distinction here of enemy is, are we talking a human enemy, or are we talking uh, a spiritual enemy? And if the answer is human enemy, then you, you love and care for them. If it's any other kind of enemy, you avoid, disparage, destroy, and, and just, uh, yeah, dislike, <laughs> disassociate from. Renounce. Renounce the devil and there all his go. works and all his ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Three times that's said. Uh, Oswald Bayer, some nerdy people might know who he is, um, commentary, uh, Lutheran uh, theology, he, he says that renunciation, threefold renunciation, is to remind those who are being baptized that no Christian lives in neutral space, which I think is the most helpful kind of shorthand commentary on that entire section. It is, it's not, yeah, there is no such thing as neutral space as a Christian is why we talk about the church militant as opposed to the church triumphant. So so the, the opposite then of enemies here, Pastor Cook, is the matter of brother. What's, why that term? Why is that so important here? Yes, because brothers are brothers by virtue of their common father. And so God is the father of us all. Uh, the difference is some people will confess that and acknowledge that to be true, and others will not. Uh, so you treat them as part of the family. You treat them as uh, ones who are indeed loved by God because they are. And so that's uh, the word. Um, yeah, treat them as a brother. And does he talk about brothers again coming up here? Or is that the last time? That's the last time. Um, Paul uh, keeps, well, this letter is addressed to brothers. Uh, as is the first one. So First and Second Thessalonians, 21 times, Paul says, brothers. Wow. 21 times in First and Second Thessalonians, he addresses his readers as brothers. So if you want to know how it is that you should address or regard people, what does it look like to exercise your faith and treat others as brothers, just read First and Second Thessalonians and see how Paul is treating his readers. That's what it looks like to treat someone as a brother. Hmm. And in case you don't know, he says it 21 times. 
So it's <laughs> that, that's something. Yeah, I, I appreciate you counting that for us because these are not terribly long letters. I mean, we've we've gone through them now just in the month of December, and we didn't do you know Saturdays and Sundays, so that, that's not too many too many verses, and and yet to speak that way twenty one times it. It must be important for Paul. Do you, I, I mean, I'm hearing this word brother, particularly here. And what, what keeps coming to my mind is the way that Jesus speaks in Matthew 18, where he talks about winning over a brother and, and the matter of, of a brother who's sinned against you to go to him. And, and the goal of that whole conversation is to keep him as a brother or to win him back yeah. as a brother. Is, is that maybe in Paul's mind here? Um, it, it seems so, uh, yes, I think the answer has to be yes, because they're so in lockstep with each other. Now, whether Paul has that specific sermon in mind, or as we like to say, good, you know, uh, great minds think alike, um, it, you know, it is very satisfying when you who are studying the Word of God and have done the work on the Word of God, hey, I really think the text is is referring to this and proclaiming this, and then you consult a commentary, or maybe you listen to a sermon by a, uh, or read a sermon by a church father, or listen to a sermon by another um, pastor, and, and they say essentially the same thing that you were thinking. Um, and so you both, given the same set of information, are coming to the same conclusion. There's a strong validity in that. So if he's drawing directly from the Sermon on the Mount, I can't say, um, but uh, he's Obviously, he's letting the gospel uh, do the guiding here, uh, and he's coming to the same conclusion as Jesus Christ, his brother and Lord. So mm. that always seems a safe thing to do to to say come to the conclusion that Jesus came to. How about that? Seem, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Pastor Cook, we have just under seven minutes here, and I I want to get to these last couple of verses because sometimes we we skip over such things, and I, I know particularly for you, I believe you've done some. What's the right word? Academic work be, and academic beyond what I've done on on some of these matters that Paul brings up, particularly verse seventeen. This matter of Paul writing this greeting with his own hand. Um, take us into to some of the the details that we know about why this is an important thing that Paul mentions here. Sure, if uh, our faith is a historical faith, um, it, it is not. Well, yeah, I'll just let it stand at that. It's a historical faith that took place in history, and so we should expect um, it to look like things around it uh, to a degree. So uh, I did I did some academic work pri- primarily on manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, um, which led me into a whole bunch of other uh, avenues of study, uh, the making of books, uh, paleography, papyrus uh, production, all this stuff. And um, what we have, um, a, a significant amount of research has been done in the production of letters. And um, we have a lot of contemporary people to Jesus Christ. We have uh, a lot of Roman philosophers. Cicero uh, very famously wrote a lot of letters, and he, he collected them himself, etc., so Paul in verse 17 says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Uh, this is a sign of g- genuineness in every letter. So um, not very many people were um, trained as the scribes, which is why scribes were called scribes. That's, they were known by that vocation. So you would pay a scribe or an amanuensis, if you want to be fancy with the terminology, um, to write your letter. 
And, uh, and then the way you would put your stamp of approval on it is after they got done writing uh, essentially the bulk of the letter, you would then take up quill and pen, uh, and you might, you know, like sign your name uh, or maybe write a single sentence and sign your name. And we have a lot of uh, papyri, papyri from uh, Dump Heap in Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, <laughs> Uh, that people have been sorting through, and they found a significant number of these letters where the handwriting changes at the very end, the letters suddenly get larger, and on a fair number of occasions, they even turn the paper 90 degrees, um, and then they'll write their letters so that their their signature is written in a completely different direction in handwriting as as the bulk of the letter. And so this is, this is convention, just conventional uh, epistolary practice of that time period, uh, and this is what Paul is up to. You see this perhaps um, most famously in Romans, uh, and uh, because Tertius writes the letter. Um, Romans 16, verse 2 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Oh. And so I've always wanted to do a nice little, uh, you know, um, bet, you know, with somebody who who wrote who wrote Romans. Well, everyone, oh, Paul wrote Romans, and then you're like, ah, actually, it was Tertius who wrote Romans. So, um, and it just means that you know, Tertius, he's the scribe, he's the guy doing the work, and then Paul will add his own own reading at the end. So you should be aware of that historical little archaeological uh, confirming fact. This is exactly what you would expect. And in fact, if you didn't see it, you might get suspicious. Hmm. So uh, it's it's good good to see the kind of historical uh, support and evidence for um, for our faith. Hmm. Also, I would add a lot of people will say, "This is a hobby horse of mine." Um, Paul may have the thorn in the flesh conversation of Second Corinthians. They say, "Well, maybe he had bad eyesight because he was struck blind." on uh, the road to Damascus, and, uh, and he's writing in such large letters, so maybe he just couldn't see what he was writing. Um, you're overthinking it. You really are. Um, the kids, whose handwriting is big? Kids. I have children, my, my youngest children. They write with obnoxiously large letters, uh, and uh, adults uh, write smaller because they're more proficient at it. And mm. so that's what's larger. Um, hmm. the large letters. He's just not trained at doing it, and that's what you would expect. Hmm. Particularly, just to, to point this out real quick here towards the end, that this matter of, of the genuineness of Paul's letter would have been important for the Thessalonians, given that there's been some other letters perhaps going around claiming to be from Paul. We, we got a reference to that in chapter 2 of this epistle particularly. So the matter of genuineness, seeing Paul's signature here, would have been particularly important. Patrick, we have... About two minutes here. I'd like for you just to, to summarize here the, the morning. Any thoughts on First and Second Thessalonians as a whole as we wrap up today in this series? Yeah, they are, they are living in a resurrection reality. Uh, we say this in the Nicene Creed. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And that uh, is how they are living. And to the extent, even in Second Thessalonians, that uh, they might be so... Uh, anticipating the return of Jesus Christ, that they're just not taking care of the things that need to be taken care of. Uh, why harvest the crops? Christ is coming back. Um, what's the point? Um, so they, they really are. They're expecting the return of Jesus Christ. And we are to live this way too. 
Um, and so Paul's not telling them, don't anticipate or look for the return of Jesus Christ. He's saying, until Christ returns, we need to live in a way that confesses Jesus as Lord. And as Lord, he has commanded us to love God and love our neighbor. So we trust in Christ as the one who saves us from the wrath to come, First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Um, and we trust in Christ as the one who has bid us to love our neighbors as ourselves, which would be the end of this letter. Um, don't grow weary of doing good. Care for your uh, neighbor. Um, so, um, and then he, he offers grace and peace, and peace only comes from from the Lord, uh, a reconciliation with God, who through Christ reconciled the world to Himself. Um, and so, we're people of peace. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us this morning with 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Pastor Cook, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for taking this journey with us through 1 and 2 Thessalonians during the month of December. I pray that it has strengthened you as you wait for Christ's return, as you look forward to that day of resurrection that he has promised that you would do so in faith toward him and in love toward your neighbor. Sharper Iron will be taking a break over the coming days of Christmas from December 24th through January 6th. There will be special Christmas programming on Worldwide KFUO. We'll be back on the other side on January 7th, though, with a new series on the Gospel of Matthew. I encourage you to join us then. Until then, have a very Merry Christmas and a blessed New Year in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to Sharper Iron.